0: Have you heard the news? On October 13th, animal justice supporters from coast to coast are going silent for 24 whole hours in support of our Voiceless for Animal Justice campaign. We're doing this to raise awareness about the ways that our legal and political systems ignore animals' voices. And we're also doing it to raise much-needed funds to support animal justice's critical legal work on behalf of animals. There are fantastic prizes available for the top fundraisers, and we're already well on our way to meeting our $25,000 goal. If you want to join in on the fun, visit animaljustice.ca to learn more about Voiceless for Animal Justice.
1: In the Canadian justice system, animals' interests are rarely represented, but the lawyers at Animal Justice fight to give them a voice in court and the political system. This is the Pawn Order Podcast, and these are their stories.
0: Welcome to episode 18 of the Paw & Order podcast. I'm your host, Camille Lapchuk, and Peter decided to take the week off, so... Uh, I guess he's off on vacation or doing whatever. No, I'm just joking. He's actually preparing for a Supreme Court hearing, so fair enough. Uh, but that means that I'm joined today by a very special co-host, Taylor Zavitz. Welcome, Taylor.
1: Hi, Camille. Thanks for having me.
0: Well, it's so good that you're here. And you know what I actually realized is that you're the first non-lawyer guest that we've had on this uh, this program so far. So, uh, welcome. It's a first. Oh.
1: That's awesome. Thank you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Although funny enough, we first met because at one point Taylor was considering going into animal law. So Taylor, I think it was when I was still in law school and you were still an undergrad maybe and you were coming to law events and then we went to a conference together in Portland on animal law too. Does that seem right?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I was going to um, some of the, the law events that were at the uh, Toronto uh, Law School and then I went to the Portland one and that's actually where I met Peter as well. So. Um, kind of a small world. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed it is and instead of going into law you maybe made a smarter
0: decision and went on to (laughs) to pursue some master's and PhD studies.
1: Yes I did. I did my my MA in critical sociology and then I'm now doing my PhD in uh, political sociology and social movements but I kind of really focus in uh, and situate my work within critical animal studies. Well,
0: and your research topics are super interesting t- today as well, and uh, the fact that you're on is the reason that we chose the topic that we did for today, which is essentially the way that animal activists' civil liberties and their rights are repressed and taken away by industries, by governments, by other agents who are uh, working against the interests of animals. Right. So you're the perfect guest to talk about this, and we're going to get into the main segment pretty soon. But um, first, Taylor, why don't you tell us how the school year has been so far? Back to class?
1: <laughs> back to class. It's all—it's funny, no matter how many years I find that I've been in school, which at this point is kind of forever, um, no matter how much practice you have going back in September, it always hits you like a ton of bricks. Like I don't know what it is about September, but uh, getting back into the swing of things is always kind of difficult, but it's so far so good. Um, It's been a busy year already. I have a new position at the university. So I'm a teaching assistant consultant and coordinator. So I've been training all the sociology TAs and doing workshops and, and that sort of thing. So on top of my own research and everything, I'm doing that as well. So it's, it's definitely been busy, but it's, it's been good.
0: Wow. Well, I was going to say that I don't really envy you going back to school and I haven't had to do that now for a few years, but my (laughs) own fall is really not that much better. So I guess uh, maybe the grass is always greener. I just got back from uh, from Halifax VegFest the other day and also two talks at Dalhousie Law, which was super cool. Uh, The student animal um, law club out at Dalhousie is just like massive and doing a great job. And we held this law hour lunchtime talk where I spoke to just any student who was interested. And there were like dozens of people who showed up, which is which is always good because you never know with a with a lunchtime animal law talk, as I'm sure you've (laughs) seen these these types of crowds can sometimes be inconsistent. But that was super cool. That's awesome yeah it was fun. Um, I also am off to New Brunswick next week for a workshop on exotic animals and some of the issues that come in with uh, enforcing the laws about them and making laws about them in the first place and how the system tries to deal with exotic animals, which it mostly uh, spoiler alert doesn't. <laughs> no surprise there shocking. Shocking. Yeah. And uh, we've got this animal law conference coming up in Chicago the weekend after Thanksgiving. I don't you're not going to that, are you?
1: I'm not unfortunately, I wish I could. Oh, another year. Another year. And, and uh,
0: another question for you. Have you seen the new film yet? Dominion?
1: I have. We actually had a screening of it um, on campus uh, last the end of last uh, year. So um, yeah, we did. We did do that. And uh, it's an incredible film.
0: Yeah, I finally watched it myself too. I'm actually discussing it um, after a screening sometime pretty soon. So I thought, well, I don't want to watch it that same night at the screening itself because I'll probably just be a total wreck after. <laughs> yep. And uh, oh my God, so I watched it at home. And wow, what a documentary. If anyone's seen Earthlings, it to me, it just seems like Earthlings in HD, which is even more graphic and really just lays bare what industries do to animals.
1: Yeah, yeah, it was... It's one of those things, too, no matter how many times you see it, that continues to shock you, just the level um, and the extent that we go to and the, and the things that we do to animals.
0: Yeah, it's so true. I mean, you and I, I'm pretty sure we both watched enough slaughterhouse vi- uh, videos to to, um, to last a lifetime, but seeing it again in so much detail is just, it's just completely shocking. And the other thing that I noticed is... Uh, they've got footage that I've never really seen before. I don't know about you, but I've, I've never seen like inside the kill box when pigs are being lowered into a carbon monoxide um, type way of killing them. Um, you know, but it seems like this team, this film team, actually in slaughterhouses, left cameras behind to gather that footage and later collected them. So they've got stuff that I've just never even seen before.
1: Yeah, no, I agree. I, there was quite a bit um, in the film that I hadn't seen either. And, um, and that's great because... I mean, not great, but um, it's always good when you have different footage coming out because if t- it tends to be the same kind of footage over and over. And I think people just kind of get tired of seeing it. But when you start to see that there's all this different uh, different ways to kill animals and all these different things happening to them, I think it's even more powerful.
0: Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. And it's it also really drives home the, the brutal reality of slaughter. And, you know, sometimes people think, well, if I... Buy humanely raised meat whatever that means or free-range eggs whatever that means and the animals just have one bad day um and just you know one minute when their throats are slit then maybe it's not so bad but when you start to watch the slaughter footage uh, you see that even the standards that are laid out in law are so often just ignored or can't be met because slaughter lines are going so fast, or it's just you know frankly not easy to kill an animal or kill a human or kill anyone who doesn't want to die. And so you see animals just struggling not to be killed and trying to right themselves and escape, and it's really shocking. So you know I would urge anyone to watch it. Um, especially if you're not already really aware of what happens, you'll definitely learn a thing or two and the truth might shock you. Definitely. Oh, okay. So Taylor, the other thing we've got going on, I don't know if you saw this yet, but we launched a new campaign called Voiceless for Animal Justice, and there should be a hashtag there at the beginning, hashtag Voiceless for Animal Justice. And it is a three-week campaign culminating on October 13th with a day of silence for people who are taking part in it. So we're all going to pledge not to say a single word for the entire day, which for some people, including myself, is going to be really hard.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yep, that will be a challenge.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And uh, the point of all of it, well, there's two points. Number one is to raise money to support Animal Justice's work uh, because we are doing our best to represent the animals whose voices are silenced by the legal system by legislators, by uh, by courts, and uh, raise money to support that work, and also just remind people of the extent to which animals' um, voices are often ignored in our systems. And I wanted, Taylor, you and I chatted about this campaign early on, and I wanted your feedback on it because I know you have some thoughts about Using the word "voiceless" to describe animals and whether it's really appropriate to do so. So we wanted to be careful in the way that we communicated about this campaign, because I know you would argue that animals do have voices. It's not that they're voiceless; it's just that we ignore them.
1: Right. Yeah, and it's it's kind of funny timing that we're having this conversation because I just posted um, something about this the other day on social media, and you tend to get like both extremes of feedback. You get people who totally agree and then, and they're on board with it. And then you get people who are so angry over this topic. And I really can't wrap my head around why that's the case. Um, but you know, you constantly have people saying like, but we are their voice because people can't hear theirs or, um, we are their voice because they don't have them. But you know, we already take everything away from animals as it is. And this is one thing that we can kind of give them, you know, like we can, uh, we can keep, we can keep their voice as it is. Um, And when we constantly say things like, you know, animals are voiceless, it's just one more way of making them an other. And people typically respond to this kind of conversation in a way where they're saying you know yeah but it's not we're not talking about it in a literal in a literal way right like we're not saying that they don't literally have voices but the problem is that this is what we do um, in fact you we use this type of rhetoric all the time to argue that, Animals are not worthy of our moral or legal consideration. Um, things like language have been used as a key justification for refusing to consider animals because they're not enough like us. So when we're continuing to use this type of language, it's continuing to further that kind of conversation. Um, and you know, it's it's just one of these things. Like, if you've ever been in uh in a live auction or in a factory farm or a slaughterhouse, um, these animals have voices, and they use them at all times. And the fact is, we're just not listening to them. So to say that they're voiceless is just is just problematic. So we should be saying things like, you know, amplify the voices of those who are silenced. Um, And that's what was so great about the animal justice campaign is it made that that very clear. So um, we can nobody's saying like, that anybody doing Uh, activism and speaking out on behalf of animals. Like, I'm not saying like, don't, don't do that. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, (laughs) obviously we need to be doing that, but we just need to be careful with our language. Um, And that's something specifically within critical animal studies, uh, that I've found over the years, uh, language is key in everything, in everything we do. Right. When we talk about speciesism, that sort of thing, like all our language matters and we have to be critical as, as a movement. um, and we have to be able to critique ourselves and evolve and move forward. um, because that's how we're going to create change.
0: I think that's a really healthy approach, self-reflection and and self-critique, and also the importance of language. I I think about this all the time, and whether the ways that we all communicate about animals reinforces the uh, systemic abuse that they're suffering and the way that society usually sees them right now. Uh, You know, the most stirring example for me is always the use of the word it to describe animals, especially in media stories. Animals are often referred to as it or they, even, even if the writer of the article knows that the animal is a female because the female animal has kittens for instance like i see it all the time and it drives me nuts
1: right and that's and again that's what's so important about uh the language that we use we have to be removing ourselves from how industry talks about them um, to show who they really are right and by saying that they're voiceless or by calling calling animals an it um we're just reinforcing that mentality of of they're not their own being
0: Mm, I think that's really important to keep in mind. Well, thanks for your comments on that. Yeah. Okay, so Taylor, we're going to move on to the In the News section. And as usual, there's lots to go on here. And most of it's not very good this week <laughs> uh, okay so this the first article we're going dis- to discuss is a, a really good piece from the globe and mail actually um and we who does uh, a good job covering food issues and often delves into animal issues as a result of that she received and reviewed some access to information documents that were um, obtained by another uh, organization the uh, canadian coalition for farm animals so shout out to them for gathering this info but what they are article- details is that the CFIA, which inspects transport trucks shipping animals to, to slaughter, is really inconsistently enforcing their laws, which, um, you know, we've already known this. But what's so interesting about this is that the uh, CFIA occasionally does highway inspections. And in 2016 and 2017, they, they did a bunch in some of the provinces, like British Columbia, Alberta, PEI. And absolutely no highway inspections in other provinces and including ontario and quebec which are of course the biggest provinces so
1: it was kind of surprising i'm it's one of those things that like like you said we know about this but to actually see it written out that like they're just not doing inspections and and the blatant way that they talk about why they're not doing inspections is totally mind-boggling to me <laughs>
0: Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. And the CFA sort of justifies this. They're they're like, well, we conduct routine inspections of trucks at loading facilities and slaughterhouses. But inspections just at the beginning or the end of the journey, I mean, those are predictable, and the transporters know that's going to happen. So the best or one of the uh, most important tools you can use when you're law enforcement is random inspections for regulatory regimes to make sure that those are being respected. And if uh, there's no expectation that at any point you could be pulled over and inspected by the CFIA, well, that's just like one less incentive to comply with the law.
1: Exactly. And I found it in this article, I found it so interesting. Some of the things that um, were said by uh, the CFIA themselves, Um, there's one quote that says, when asked specifically about whether the CFIA has a policy for highway inspections, a spokesperson emailed a statement saying they are conducted pending the availability of law enforcement partners and appropriate weather conditions. So this is just so ironic to me because basically they're saying that they can only be conducted dependent on specific weather conditions. So the weather conditions aren't appropriate to do inspections, but they are appropriate for these animals to be transported for days on end in that exact weather
0: wow yeah that's that's a really good anecdote to to really lay bare the hypocrisy of this situation that's that's appalling and as listeners will know and if you're a new listener maybe you don't know this already but animals in canada can be transported right now in literally any weather conditions that transporters feel like trucking them in and the way these farms are set up and the way slaughterhouses are set up they don't stop shipments of animals just because it's minus 40 below with a windshield they don't stop in the summer when there's a humid x of plus 40 they just keep going. So another fundamental problem there. But, um, you know, even if you are shipping them in these these horrible weather conditions, they are still not supposed to suffer. So the fact that the CFIA thinks it shouldn't be out there, especially in those situations, is exactly the opposite of what they should be doing
1: right and and you know they said as well something about um you know highway checks and how they rarely result in in findings of non compliance um and this obviously to anybody who's done activism is is totally bogus because you know there's groups that are that are out um documenting what's going on um in transport um and you have you know save groups for instance all over the world who are documenting this and it's consistently exposing Like mass suffering and broken regulations. So how is it the case that, you know, they're not finding um, that there's, you know, there's there's no issue in terms of transport, but activist groups on a daily basis continue to find these issues?
0: Yeah, it just seems really implausible to me. So I think this is actually a great reminder of the importance uh, of always reporting animal cruelty when we see it. So for anyone who's out there doing vigils outside of a slaughterhouse and you witness something that you don't think seems quite right, uh, don't trust the CFIA to be the ones to find that out. You might need to be the one to report it to them. So um, Taylor, I know you've always been really um, encouraging and supportive of, of, of reporting Uh, potential abuse and violations of transport regulations to the CFIA. And I hope people will take that to heart.
1: Yeah, because I mean, you know, as we've seen, the CFIA itself is not going it's it they're not going to step up and suddenly change, right? That's not the point of reporting. But when we're not reporting, they can then come out and say this kind of thing in the paper and say, well, you know, it rarely results in, in findings of noncompliance. Well, if we can come back as an activist group and say, well, actually, here's 65 reports that we made between, you know, mm-hmm. August and August and December of, of 2018, and here's everything that's going on, um, we can then use that in a way to hopefully try and create actual change. Whereas if we don't have those reports, it's our word against theirs and who's going to win.
0: Yeah, that's right. And in this case, it really is up to the citizens to hold this agency accountable and to hold the industry accountable. So if you need assistance ever in trying to file a cruelty report, please contact Animal Justice through the website and we'd be very happy to help you. Okay, so Taylor, the next story is uh, one that we first brought people back in uh, May or June, was it now? But... An employee of the Edmonton Humane Society has just been charged with uh, two provincial offenses after um, two cats were left inside a vehicle for 22 days. The the cats were being transported and uh, they got left behind, they were forgotten, somebody else came to move the vehicle 22 days later and they, they were discovered at that point. So when this story came out, I know everyone was just like shocked that this type of thing could occur. And what Peter and I were really concerned about as well was um, who was going to be investigating this and and seeing where this was going to go. Because of course, uh, Taylor, as you know, the Edmonton Humane Society, it does sheltering, it does good things for animals. It's also charged with uh, enforcing the law. So a potential violation of animal laws, uh, animal protection laws would be investigated by them. And in this case, because one of their employees was the person potentially involved, we were concerned about the independence of that process. So uh, it, what ended up happening is the Alberta SPCA was called in to investigate. They're another private agency. So um, like the SPCA, they're they're a private um, charity and uh, do this type of law enforcement across the province, but not usually in Edmonton. And it looks to me like uh, they investigated and they decided that there should be two charges laid. So causing or permitting animals to be in distress and failing to provide animals with adequate food or water.
1: Just unbelievable. Like 22 days. I know. (laughs) It still blows my mind that the
0: cats were still alive. I I don't understand how that's possible. I'm, I'm really glad they are. And, you know, I should say it's it's a sad situation. I'm sure the employee who's going through this feels terrible. And um, I you know, have a lot of sympathy for the situation. I am glad that it was investigated thoroughly and independently, because I think that's what was really important here. Right. Yeah. So uh, that's kind of the uh, update on that story for now. And, oh, Taylor, of course, no one can escape the news coverage of North Carolina and what's been happening in the aftermath of Hurricane Florence. Um, our friends at We Animals are down there right now. So Joanne MacArthur and Kelly Guerin and sending back just some horrifying images of, of the aftermath of this storm and not necessarily what it means just for humans, but for the animals who were left behind in many cases to die and drown inside warehouses at factory farms. Have you seen some of the images coming out?
1: I have. I, I unfortunately went down the rabbit hole of that situation one afternoon. Um because I knew a couple of people that were down there and they were, you know, out trying to document what was going on. And, um, it's just, it's just horrific. Um, you know, we've seen images like this before, um, with hurricanes and that sort of thing. And I heard, uh, from some people that were kind of on the ground there that, it seemed to be that they were in for this one because of what happened after the last one when specifically um, some of these pig farms with all these pigs that were just like floating out in these waters. And it was like such a PR nightmare for these industries that they actually like spent time just like locking all these places up in order to avoid that sort of scrutiny afterwards. So instead of spending time trying to get these like animals out, they spend time just trying to hide what was going to happen to them.
0: Yeah, it's completely appalling. And I'm sure you're right about that because um, we, we just haven't seen the same sort of floating pig images, but we know that I, I don't know exactly how many, but likely in the millions of pigs have died at this point and definitely in the millions of chickens and North Carolina, of course, is a huge agricultural state. They have a very, very uh, massive pig meat industry. And, uh, you know, for these farmers, Taylor, it just breaks my heart. They treat these animals as uh, an insurance write-off. They are obviously not able even to, um, to to undertake any sort of rescue operation to get these animals out because there's just nowhere to go, and that's never contemplated. The animals are just bred to um, grow quickly and and die. There's never any consideration given to an evacuation plan for a hurricane situation.
1: No. And the one video, um, I, I believe it was, uh, with Joanne and Kelly. Um, and there was some pigs that they ended up like rescuing and and spending a night on like a bridge with them. Um, and we're like trying to get some people to come and help rescue them. And the farmer ended up coming back and the police were there and insisted that they gave these pigs back to this farmer. Um, and it was just like watching, it was just devastating because, I can only imagine how, uh, how these individuals felt after spending all this time trying to help them and then to know that they're going right back to where they came from.
0: Oh my gosh, that's terrible. And I've also heard reports of activists down there doing animal rescue who've been um, threatened with guns by farmers defending their property, which is the dead animals at this point, <laughs> I guess trying to prevent the rescue of any survivors. So it's a, And of course the states, it's not like Canada. There are tons of guns down there, and it's actually a real security threat to be uh, trying to do this rescue. So I really admire those people who've literally put their lives on the lines to try to save whichever animals they can.
1: Absolutely, the the people that are on the ground there are just incredible, and my heart goes out to all of them.
0: Yeah, thank you to those to those brave folks. And um, one story that really has rankled me about the North Carolina flooding is uh, a woman was actually charged uh, with. I believe criminal offenses for practicing veterinary medicine without a license in the aftermath when she was trying to rescue a bunch of animals uh she essentially runs um, a rescue of some sort and when the flooding began she managed to get a lot of animals from the streets Uh, volunteers brought animals to her and many of the animals were sick or injured and neglected and these would be animals who maybe were homeless in the first place Um, maybe owners had to evacuate and then didn't bring their pets with them or other situations but she ended up taylor with 27 animals so 17 cats and 10 dogs and this woman tammy hedges um, opened a warehouse. She she found a warehouse and a space to, to house these animals and try to help them. Administered whatever medication she could to them um, and the state inspector officials Taylor, they decided to show up and um, for some reason, uh, they they went there at the request of the Department of Agriculture and developed concerns that she was practicing veterinary medicine without a license, um, specifically for administering some medication to these suffering animals. And so now she has been charged.
1: It's, this is one of those stories that just makes my blood boil on so many levels. Like, you know, we're continuing to see the criminalization of people who care, you know, like compassion, people... Are being criminalized for having empathy people are being criminalized for trying to do their best and help animals and yet those who are actually doing the harm right like those who are have who have abandoned these animals and left them to die continue on their merry way as if nothing happened like how is this still where we're at with our legal system It's shocking. I would not be surprised if this turned into the next Anita
0: Crimes pig trial, because it's really approaching that level. Like, this is a woman who could have fled herself from the zone and gotten to a safe area. Instead, she stayed behind, found a warehouse, equipped it with all the things that you need, litter boxes, crates, kennels, asked for donations through social media, and put her heart into saving the few animals that she could rescue. And she's being prosecuted while the farmers who left behind millions of animals to die or just you, using it as an insurance write-off? Like, how does that make any sense?
1: It's unbelievable. And, you know, this the, this really makes me think, too, of, um, you know, we see cases like this where people helping and saving animals are criminalized. And yet you have cases like vets, like Dr. Um, – I think his name was Reiki or Reiki in St. Catharines, Ontario, where he yeah. was shown on video repeatedly beating and horrifically abusing animals that were in his care in his veterinary office and charges against him were all dropped, and he walks away, continuing to be able to practice. You know, like, how is this where we're at, that somebody who's trying to help is criminalized, but somebody who's blatantly breaking the law gets away with it?
0: Well, I hope that what we saw with Anita's trial transpires here, because Anita's trial, ultimately the industry shot itself in its foot by pursuing her, because... definitely. It turned the save movement into a global phenomenon. People started hearing about this case and couldn't believe that it was happening and it inspired them to go veg, to become activists. So I really hope that Tammy's able to leverage this in a similar way. Uh, One good thing I saw at the bottom of this Washington Post story is that apparently a crowdfunding page for her has already raised $20,000. So um, uh, anyone who wants to donate will post a link to that in the show notes because this woman deserves an award, not jail time. Absolutely. Okay. And the final story, another United States story. Um, Whole Foods has just sought and received a restraining order against some direct action everywhere activists in its Berkeley store. (laughs) So... Uh, Anyone who follows Direct Action Everywhere, also known as DXC, you may have noticed that um, DXC has been targeting Whole Foods and Amazon recently. They've done undercover investigations at several of their farms, Uh, turkey farms, uh, chicken farms, and um, I believe pig farms as well. And they found pretty horrific abuse, which of course is industry standard. But what's interesting about Whole Foods is it has a supposed humane program five-step animal welfare program it it tries to market the meat that it sells as being somehow humane or at least less cruel and what dxc has uncovered is um, anything but that so dxc has been occupying whole foods on occasion they do disruptions where they show up with signs and chant for a few minutes before leaving and i guess whole foods didn't like this very much
1: it's again this is just something like why is this how our legal system is being used? Like you have activists going in and asking questions about a policy that they have put in place. Like Whole Foods put this in place to try and say that, you know, they're above, uh, above these other, these other stores, um, with their regulations and the care that they give to these animals. So if you're the one promoting this, you should then have to answer questions about, what's actually taking place in these facilities when things come out that no, this isn't actually the case. And instead of just having that conversation, we're going to try and criminalize those who are asking the questions.
0: Yeah, it's pretty astounding. I'm not really sure this is a good PR story for Whole Foods. (laughs) And, like, you know, full confession, I love Whole Foods for for all the vegan stuff that they sell. And I love shopping there. I love the experience. I'm probably not going to stop shopping there, but um, it's really annoying. Like, they should just own up to this and try to do something to improve their supply chain. Instead yeah. of just trying to stop people from speaking out publicly about it. But, you know, I guess DXE was planning like a week-long sort of occupation of their store. So <laughs> maybe they thought this was their only option. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, last straw, I guess.
0: Yeah. Anyway, these these last two stories—the women charged for practicing without a, a license and the DxE story—I think they're a good segue into our main topic, which is focused on the civil liberties of the people who speak up for animals and how industries and politicians and our courts, in in often situations, um, sometimes can infringe upon those liberties. <laughs> This is an area that we've ended up doing a lot of work on through animal justice because there's a real demand for it. Um, it could be anything from a protester being slapped with an injunction lawsuit to somebody being criminally charged for for their activism. But we think it's really important that those people who are using their voices to amplify the voices of animals be allowed to do so without um, unfair or unlawful state or corporate repression. And Taylor, you're the perfect guest to talk about this, because I know that you have researched this area extensively, especially in the Canadian context, where there has been less research on this topic.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, I got into this research uh, many years ago after I read um, Will Potter's Green is the New Red, um, which is an incredible book. If, if people um, listening have not read that, I highly recommend it. Um, it's just a, a groundbreaking book. Um, look into what's going on in the United States specifically in terms of activist repression uh, and when I learned about this um, I was I was just dumbfounded by by what was happening and uh, at the time I was um, you know doing doing my studies in critical animal studies and then I went on uh, to work with you and others at uh, MFA Canada and Uh, I started to kind of wonder, like, what was happening in Canada in this regard? Like, I hadn't really heard people talking about it. uh, And I thought, like, we have to have some, like, something has to be happening. If we're doing the same sort of thing here uh, that they're doing in the United States in terms of activism, uh, what are we going to see here? Or, you know, was this kind of already happening and we just didn't know about it? And so that's where I wanted to come in with my research is to kind of, you know, close that gap in terms of uh, of what's going on in Canada uh, with activist repression cases, because there are plenty.
0: Yeah, and it's so interesting, because I think you're right that we hear a lot more about this happening in the United States. So most people have probably have heard of the Animal Enterprise Terrorism Act, which is, is something Congress passed that is used to criminalize all kinds of, um, you know, protest and sort of, free speech type behavior, uh, where people are speaking out about um, animal abuse in corporations. So it's been used to target people speaking out about animal lab abuse. It's been used to target people who have liberated minks from captivity. And it labels them with the term terrorist, and it takes it up to the next level. So that's been a focal point for this discussion, I think, especially in the States. But what have you found in Canada? What has your research kind of shown is happening here?
1: So I think the reason that we typically don't see this being talked about as much in Canada is because we don't have these like blatant, bold um, acts that they have in the United States. Like you said, the Animal Enterprise Terrorism Act um, or egg egg legislation, right? These are very specific legislations that are specifically targeting animal activists. And so um, it's just kind of a very blatant and easy thing to talk about when you talk about the United States. But what I've found in in Canada is that we don't have these kind of overarching laws, um, that are, that are able to target, uh, to target activists specifically. But what I have found is that the laws that we do have are being used in a way that they really shouldn't be, or they're kind of being stretched, uh, in, in a number of ways in order to target animal activists. So, whether that's through like bogus lawsuits or uh, criminal charges against activists or failure to charge um, cases where you know an activist has been physically assaulted by like a like an industry worker or something like that, but they fail to charge that person, um, or there's you know there's a lot of terrorist labeling of activists in Canada as well. That when I started to do this research um, was very blatant, but again, most people. Have no idea that this conversation is happening uh, about activists here.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. And maybe because there's no real focal point of this. And, and like you said, there's no legislation that people can focus on striking down or combating. It just sort of continues to happen, but it's more difficult to, to define and like name what's actually going on. But Why don't we go through each of those categories that you mentioned? We've got criminal cases, lawsuits, um, cases where people aren't charged when they should be, and surveillance and terrorism. And sort of break that down and talk about what we've seen recently in Canada, because I know we've got many, many examples of each category. We (laughs) we definitely do. (laughs) And criminal cases, criminal cases, that's a really easy one. We've already talked about one of those famous cases, which is uh, the Anita Crimes pig trial.
1: Right. I mean, that was the one that kind of when I started doing this research, like everybody knew about that one, right? Um, and everybody was talking about it. it made international news. So um, even people who don't care about animal issues knew about this case just because it was so ridiculous and people were just so outraged by it. And so that's kind of where I started with my research because I knew that was kind of the main focal point. Everybody knew about it. Um, but then when you really kind of dive into... Um, some other examples, there's, there's plenty. Um, and you know, I'm really just at the very beginning of this research. This is just kind of the, the basic, uh, information that I found up to this point. And I'm sure, unfortunately I'm going to uncover a lot more, but you know, there's cases of, um, of people being charged, like criminal mischief is a big one that seems to be used right now, uh, against activists. So, you know, you have, People who, activists who have run out um, into a Blue Jays game with a banner that says like Animal Liberation Now, um, and they're charged with criminal mischief. Um, You have activists who, uh, there was an activist in Vancouver who was um, protesting outside of a, a fur store on a regular basis. Um, And a female employee there claimed that his behavior caused her to feel discomfort and fear. And he was um, threatened by police with a warning letter that he was going to be um, arrested for criminal harassment. And so, you know, you have these, these kind of cases where, like, now, as a Canadian citizen, like, we have a right to peaceful assembly, we have a right to protest. So where are we now drawing the line between protesting and then saying, well, he's harassing me because he's standing outside of my store. Um, And so you have these laws that really shouldn't be used in a way that they're being used just in a way to try and silence activists.
0: Yeah, totally. And um, you're right. Mischief is often used as kind of a catch all offense. If the police want to charge someone with something, but they're not really sure what it might have been. (laughs) Oftentimes mischief makes an appearance. Uh, Another example from Vancouver is an activist out there who was chalking. So he was writing words in chalk on overpasses so that people driving through would see those words and maybe take action. He was writing the, the film Earthlings Changed My Life. And the police came along and laid a mischief charge against him for that, um, too. It didn't stick. They eventually withdrew it, but um, not after a fair amount of legal wrangling.
1: Right. And that's typically the way that you see these go. Um, a lot of the times the cases don't go anywhere in terms of like they're not like these individuals are not actually convicted. The charges are usually dropped and that tends to happen. But it's the fact that the charges happen at all because it's just a way to uh, pull activists through the criminal system. It's it's scary, right, for activists for for people who, especially most of these people tend to be like young uh, young people who got involved in activism because they care about a specific issue, and now you have this kind of target on your back and this fear of being criminally charged for something um, that you should never be criminally charged for, and and that's exactly what they're trying to do and you know, there's, um, there's the case, uh, in Ontario where, uh, there was an activist who was falsely criminally charged with assault on a ministry of natural resources worker. Um, and despite the fact that there's full video evidence of the entire interaction showing nothing of, of any sort of assault or anything that could be taken as assault, um, those charges went through and they, they dragged this individual through the criminal, the criminal justice system. And they, you know, A lot of money was spent trying to defend themselves. And again, this, this charge was withdrawn because it was totally bogus, but it's just that mentality of let's try and get them through the system. Let's try and kind of, you know, create that fear and, and hope that that works
0: exactly and you know i think the goal is to disempower activists disincentivize them from using their voices and for speaking up and doing what they were doing before probably results in fewer people being interested in joining the movement or certain protests because they fear uh, reprisal and of course the cost of paying for a lawyer to come and help you deal with these charges is not insignificant too exactly exactly yeah. And then the final case that um, is somewhat recent and, and coming up, uh, it's colloquially being called the hashtag mink trial because uh, it's a, a case similar to Anita's in, in some some ways where uh, an individual, Malcolm Klimawich, who attended at a variety of fur firms in Ontario and he filmed what he saw. He uh, saw horrific suffering, of course, of minks in tiny cages who were losing their minds and performing stereotypic repetitive behaviors. Uh, Many minks who were missing body parts or ears who had raw skin, uh, maggots. The the footage is disgusting to watch and it's heartbreaking. And interestingly, the fur farms haven't been charged, but Malcolm's now being prosecuted for, I believe now, two counts of break and enter. So it continues. It continues. <laughs> it continues. So, Taylor, it's it's not always the state who's uh, the bad guy here who's prosecuting. A lot of times, it's corporations who are going after activists. What have you uncovered about that?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, there's a, a number of cases um, where industries themselves have uh, have gone after activists. And typically you see that a lot of the times with lawsuits. So, you know, we've seen Marineland is kind of any time you hear about like an animal lawsuit, most people think about Marineland because <laughs> the amount of lawsuits that have come out of that place are just <laughs> it's like laughable at this point. Oh, um, they're
0: the poster child for frivolous litigation. I can't even keep track of them
1: they are like that lawyer must just be rolling in cash. Like I can only imagine. Um, but you know, like there's, there's numerous individuals who have been charged or sorry, not charged, who have been sued, um, by Marine land, like former, uh, trainers and, and whistleblowers. And for like obscene amounts of money, like $1.5 million, um, in damages, because you know, they've, they've spoken out about the horrib- like the horrible conditions of, of the animals at Marineland. Um, and there was just numerous cases from Marineland. Um, another activist was charged, uh, for, or I keep saying charged sued for 1.5 million. Um, then they sued, um, like a young California student who was like 18 at the time, um, for a million dollars over an unreleased Orca film. So like it wasn't even released, like nobody even saw this and they sued him uh, for a million dollars in damages.
0: Yeah, they're, they're extremely litigious. Although, interestingly, Ontario has SLAP legislation now, so anti-SLAP legislation that's supposed to deal with a lot of these frivolous um, speech-limiting lawsuits at the outset. And Marineland severely curtailed their litigation activities since um, since that became law, so so that's good news. But, um, you know, it's interesting when we talk about aquariums, because for me, the idea that they keep suing everybody is a reflection that their industries are dying and they know it. They know that people don't want to see whales. Well and dolphins and tanks anymore so i think their backs are up against a wall and they're and they're um, lashing out through the courts at this point point. and of course taylor another uh really prime example of this is the vancouver aquarium filming or sorry suing filmmaker gary charbonneau for his film vancouver aquarium uncovered yeah, and what that was, was so go ahead
1: no i was just saying that that was a big one especially out in bc kind of everybody um Everybody knew about that one. Again, that was kind of the same sort of thing uh, as Anita's case. Even if people weren't involved in animal animal issues, this was kind of one of those cases that just took over in the media.
0: Yeah, and, you know, Gary's film, it, uh, it showed... Basically, what the aquarium says doesn't really match up with what it does when it comes to conservation and their commitment to that. And, of course, detailed the suffering that uh, cetaceans so whales and dolphins go through when they're kept in tiny tanks. And the really fascinating thing about that case to me, and we did an episode about this case and other aquarium issues on the podcast before, is that they didn't sue him for defamation. So they didn't say, you're defaming us and you're lying about us. They sued him for copyright, and they tried to claim that he was using some of their copyrighted material. Uh, So, you know, luckily the courts eventually saw through that. There were a few levels of cases, and there was an injunction that was issued, and then that was overturned by the Court of Appeal. And the Court of Appeal was like, nah, that's not going to fly here. Uh, so, So a good result in the end, but still, just another example of aquariums in particular going after activists
1: yeah and i think no pun intended or maybe intended you know they're just drowning at this point um and like you said i think they know that and they're grasping at straws in order to try and kind of kind of hang on to the very end
0: i know and it's funny because most industries like the farming industry never sues activists, or at least not anymore. I, th- I think that they learned their lesson after the McLebel lawsuit. <laughs> and after the, the lawsuit against Oprah, like they've learned that that backfires on them and that they get more publicity that is unwelcome, frankly, because it scrutinizes their own animal abusing practices. So I guess the aquarium industry hasn't learned that lesson yet.
1: Yeah, they're, <laughs> they, they really do. They're, they're, they just take it on, and I, I don't understand what they think is going to come um, out of that in a positive way, because it just, it provides an opportunity for activists to publicly um, say their side of the story. So you're giving us more of an opportunity to actually have these conversations with more people than we would probably typically reach in the first place.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's so true. So hey, industry, keep those lawsuits coming. Yeah. We love them. <laughs> <laughs> So another interesting category that you've researched is cases where charges should have been laid but weren't, and this obviously is against um, players from the industry. So whether it's animal cruelty cases where they should have been charged, or cases where activists were assaulted or targeted personally in a criminal or illegal way, and authorities didn't do anything about it.
1: Right. So this is um, this is about. I've only got a few cases at this point. Like I said, I'm sure I will end up finding more, unfortunately, but. Um, I mean, just as somebody who's been to a lot of protests, uh, over the years, you see this all the time where, you know, things get heated, industry workers get pissed off, um, or not even just industry workers, like citizens, right? Like people who eat animal products and they see us and they get pissed off about it. Um, you have these interactions that typically, uh, somebody ends up getting assaulted and activists are the ones that, 95 or more percent of the time are the ones being assaulted um and despite having these things like fully on video um charges continuously are not laid so you know there's um the case of an activist in um in Vancouver who at uh, Hallmark Slaughterhouse was uh outside protesting and, and standing vigil and trying to document what was going on and was fully assaulted by, uh, I believe he's like the owner or, or he's like high up in, in the industry there. Um, and the entire thing is on videotape and charges were not laid in that case. Um, and then there's the case of, uh, an activist in Niagara, Ontario was struck and pushed across the road by a ministry of natural resources worker, um, at a, at a deer call. And, no charges are laid in that case, despite photo and video evidence of the assault, and that's vehicular assault, right? Like that's that's a serious issue, um, and the entire thing is on tape. And because it's an animal activist against an industry worker, the industry worker comes out on top.
0: Wow, that's so appalling. It's like they just consider that animal activists, because they're getting involved in activism, deserve to be assaulted, or they got what they were asking for, or, or what? But that's like that's what their attitude comes through as
1: essentially and in that case specifically um when when pressed as to why uh, charges were not laid the officers came back and said well we could charge that individual with criminal mischief because um she was i I forget what it was like standing in front of the driveway or something and it's like okay (gasps) so charge her then with criminal mischief and charge him because he's still the one that hit her with a vehicle (laughs) you know what i mean like these, we're not even comparing the same sort of things here. Um, and yet, you continue to see this over and over again.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, they don't want to charge you with criminal mischief, because they don't want a trial on this. They don't want to be scrutinized. They just want to silence people and shut them down. And, and that's it. Exactly. Yeah, so those are pretty disturbing ones. And then finally, there's um, a surprising amount of surveillance going on of activists and also the word terrorism and that label being thrown around, which I think is something that people don't really appreciate because we don't hear much about this or see much about it, obviously because surveillance is done in, in secret. Uh, but we know right now that police are actively surveilling activists.
1: Right. And this is, I think, one of the things that, um, that really gets to me. I mean, I mean, it all does. It's all completely completely ridiculous, um, but surveillance and especially like terrorist labeling that comes from this kind of surveillance, um, I find so problematic, um, and the fact that we're not talking about that as a movement, I find even more problematic, um, you know, like, there's cases just, like, historically within Canada that most people have never heard of. In in the U.S., the Shack 7 case, which um, was under the Animal Enterprise Terrorism Act, uh, we had a Shack Canada branch in Montreal. Um, and in 2006, there were 13 activists from that group who were arrested and charged by the Montreal police with breach of the peace following a home demonstration. And the majority of these charges, again, uh, were eventually dropped, but they they ultimately justified the, the continued surveillance of these activists. So they used it as a way, um, to continue to harass activists by monitoring wire and phone tapping, um, you know, taking their, their materials and that sort of thing. Um, and then, you know, you, you have examples too of, uh, the RCMP and CSIS who have, threat assessment reports that were done, and these were some that uh, I looked into between 2005 and 2010, Um, and this was done through the Integrated Threat Assessment Center, and that's an an anti-terror intelligence network, and it shows animal activists are categorized in these reports along with Al-Qaeda and numerous cults, and PETA and Greenpeace are actually the two most frequently cited in all the threat assessments that were done.
0: Wow, wow, that's just astounding.
1: And so you have this kind of dialogue, um, like this terrorist language happening. um, And most activists have no idea that that they're being considered terrorists (laughs) behind closed doors.
0: No, it's really appalling that the police see fit to do that in the first place. There is nothing. Animal activism is not terrorism. Animal activism is about spreading compassion and trying to protect people from suffering and from pain and keep families together. It's just totally the opposite. That drives me crazy.
1: Yeah. And, you know, they continue to use like fear mongering, right? Um, So like words like extremist, radical, this sort of thing. And they use this type of dialogue in order to try and, um, remove people from supporting animal activists you know if we create this fear around who animal activists are uh, then people aren't going to support them and listen to what they're saying right so that's kind of uh, the basis for doing that and then obviously that allows for for them to criminalize uh, activists as well
0: yeah yeah and you know what else this reminds me of especially when you were talking about the uh, the lab protesters who got uh, arrested Um, What we often see, if we try to get access to information requests from a laboratory that's a university lab, or maybe an inspection report, if there's a provincial agency doing an inspection of a lab, they will often deny that to activists, and I shouldn't say often, I will say always deny that to anyone who requests it, on the grounds that there's some public safety risk if any information about a lab inspection gets, gets out, because some protesters or some unspecified activists are going to go and like harm the experimenters, which, you know, again, uh, is something that does not happen in Canada, to my knowledge, has never happened in Canada. It's not that people who are involved in laboratory experiments are particularly targeted. I think that activism sort of covers the issues pretty equally. There's no rationale given for why that would be a concern of theirs, but they somehow get away with this.
1: And again, it's just like one more way to try and make it seem like animal activists are someone they're not, right? And it's and we see this over and over again.
0: Yeah, yeah. Suddenly we're the extremists and the people who are confining and abusing and torturing and killing animals are totally normal. Uh, so one other really interesting story that came out, I think it was earlier this year actually or maybe late last year, but we actually got – a bit of information that we don't usually see about the way that we're surveilled and the way that uh, the, the police treat this because there was an industry publication that detailed um, an officer showing up to one of their events and speaking about uh, her work. Do you remember this?
1: Yeah. So um, this was back in, um, so in January, 2018, there's uh, an article that came out in the Ontario hog farmers magazine Um And so this is like an industry magazine, right? Like they, you have to have like a, like a subscription to this in order to get this. But this article came out and the title of it is Extremist Tactics and Farmers' Rights. The most extremist groups want to induce the most shock they can get. And the very beginning of this article says, uh, the worst mistake we can make is to underestimate extremists, says Ontario Provincial Police Officer Lisa Kinnear. Kinnear works in the hate crimes unit of Ontario provincial police and is based in Orillia for the past nine years. She's been following animal rights extremists, which fall under the category of left-wing terrorism. And so this came out. Um, and you know, so basically for nine years, uh, this officer and others that are part of this hate crime unit have been monitoring activists, um, And very shortly afterwards, uh, there was Ontario provincial police officers attended a poultry industry council meeting, um, that's a partially government funded event to go and counsel farmers on how to deal with animal activists. Like the title of the talk is recommendations and considerations when dealing with animal activists. So you have police officers going to a partially government funded event, taking their time to talk to farmers on how to deal with animal activists you would never see that the other way around like you would never see them come to an activist group and say here's how to deal with angry farmers
0: <laughs> i know why isn't the opp giving us advice on this stuff why are they telling us how we can better enforce the laws that the farmers are constantly breaking it's strange it's so strange taylor <laughs>
1: Right. And it's like, if that doesn't show where their alliances are, (laughs) I don't know what would. And, you know, this, it really, I find it so interesting. If we go back to um, the article we were talking about earlier about the CFIA, um, you know, one of the things that they said in that article was that inspectors have to rely on police to make these like highway roadside stops. And this requires coordination with local officials. Well, Perhaps if if officers say in Ontario, for example, like this Ontario provincial police officer, were not spending their time monitoring activist groups and claiming that for the last nine years, these extremists are doing all sorts of things. um, Maybe they could spend that time actually upholding and enforcing the legal regulations that we have.
0: Well, there is a novel idea. Maybe (laughs) the police should get involved in prosecuting animal cruelty cases more often. I'm not going to hold my breath, but I think it's a good move for them.
1: Yeah. And I mean, that's, it's just, it's kind of the basic, like, our we already know that our laws, our laws are garbage in terms of protecting animals on any level, but even the basic, the basic laws and regulations that we do have aren't upheld. So the least they could do is take a break for an afternoon from monitoring activists online. I really don't think we're that exciting either. Like, to be honest, like, you know, like... We can say, like, a funny joke here and there. There's some good memes and stuff, but I really don't think we're that excited that for the last nine years uh, we had to be monitored, but maybe take a break from doing that and actually enforce the regulations and, you know, do your job.
0: Yeah, like, I wonder if Lisa Kinnear, the, the OPP officer, is tired of seeing vegan food pictures yet, because that's,
1: like, <laughs> half of what vegans post online. Honestly. <laughs>
0: Oh, gosh. Well, Taylor, thanks for that and for explaining all of your work. I hope that if you're somebody who considers yourself an activist and and you're listening to this, that um, you will be aware of these things, um, be aware of the potential for surveillance and the potential for legal action being taken against you and others by... Uh, these industries or by the government. And if you are someone who's facing uh, a risk of this right now, please do reach out to Animal Justice. We'll be happy to connect you with a good legal counsel that can help you get through this, because one of our goals is to make sure that animal activists uh, don't have any barriers to using their voices.
1: And I, I, I would just say, too, I think that's a really important thing to kind of drive home here is activists we as activists, we need to be aware of what's going on. Um, and, you know, I think too often, unfortunately, there's a lot of um, people who are naive in terms of, you know, what the, the, the role of the police is and, and way they, where they stand on things. And so it, it's really important for activists to really be careful in terms of their interactions with the police and, and what they're saying and what they're doing. Um, because we are being monitored, and we are being watched all the time.
0: Yeah, that's right. And anytime I do an activist legal training workshop, uh, I remind people, and I'll do so again right now, that you have no obligation to speak to the police or give them a statement about your activities, about what you're up to, about what anyone else is up to, and that beyond just identifying yourself, uh, you are advised not to speak with them because anything that you can say, anything that you say can be used against you. Exactly. Exactly.
1: Heroes and Zeros.
0: All right, and now it's time for everyone's favorite segment, and apologies to Peter because he's not here to say it. Heroes (laughs) and Zeros. Okay, so Taylor, our hero this week is an easy one. It's Nova Scotia Agriculture Minister Keith Caldwell. And you might think, well, that's unusual. Animal Justice and the Paw & Order podcast don't usually applaud agriculture ministers. But in this case, Minister Caldwell has done something really great. He's introduced legislation to ban cat declawing tail docking of dogs, ear cropping of dogs, devocalizing dogs, and really any other unnecessary cosmetic surgery on an animal. And he's also giving uh, enhanced enforcement powers to the Nova Scotia SPCA so they can detect and prosecute these cases. So, Taylor, this is pretty groundbreaking. Uh, There's a few provinces now that do have bans on uh, tail cropping and uh, or tail docking rather and ear cropping, but no province has yet banned cat decline formally through the law. Nova Scotia's veterinarians have already said that it's an unethical practice and that vets can't do it. But now this takes it one step further and that actually makes it against provincial law. So pretty cool, huh?
1: That's amazing. The fa- And the fact that this it's 2018 and we haven't done this um, is highly problematic, but uh, like huge that's huge that this is is finally happening. It's about time that we stop literally cutting off uh, pieces of animals in order to make them look a specific way.
0: Yeah, it's absolutely nuts that anyone would still consider doing that. And, like I used to know people who had their cats to clawed and didn't really think of it much when I was really young. Now that we do know, I think it's um, just absolutely appalling that anyone would still do that. And I kind of assumed that the practice had kind of fallen by the wayside. But I actually know someone who works in an Ontario veterinary clinic and he says that his clinic, um, much to his dismay, still does this procedure like multiple times a week. So there is a real need to ban this. It's not just some symbolic measure. It's actually gonna save a lot of cats, a lot of miscarriage, Misery. Absolutely. And for every hero, there's a zero, and this zero is literally the flip side of this equation. So <laughs> it's the dog breeders of Nova Scotia who stood up to oppose this legislation, Taylor. So, uh, you know, it's really progressive that we're seeing this ban on unnecessary cosmetic surgeries, but the dog breeders view it quite differently. And they, in fact, mobilized really heavily to try to kill this legislation. So the government had um, a committee testimony one day and they showed up and they said all kinds of just absolutely inflammatory things that um, completely disrespect animals and uh, their sentience and their own agency. So here's what Emily Graton said. She's a spokesperson with the Canadian Kennel Club, and she was dismayed, Taylor, about the province's planned changes to this legislation. She says, it's kind of a disappointing day for Nova Scotians involved with purebred dogs. We're probably going to see the extinction of some breeds some people who want to export their dogs well nobody's gonna want those dogs with long tails and long ears
1: oh my god (laughs) yeah and i just don't i can't even understand how somebody can say that out loud and think that's a legitimate thing to say that, like, somebody doesn't want an animal because they have a long tail. If that's where we're at as a society, we need to seriously reevaluate ourselves.
0: Yeah, yeah, I know. And I posted this on Twitter because I was pretty appalled by it and asked, and, and a lot of people responded and shared pictures of their beautiful animals with their ears and with their tails, just to make the point that uh, I think people appreciate animals for who they are and think they, they should get to keep all their body parts
1: yeah that would that should be the bare minimum that we can do for animals is to not cut off their their body parts
0: For our aesthetic preferences, not even our aesthetic preferences. This is a problem with breeders. I mean, to go back to the real root issue here, um, breeding in the first place is highly problematic. Like, I didn't know there was a shortage of dogs. It's surprising to me that people are still breeding them. (laughs) (laughs) But and then of course they promote these so-called purebred standards for dogs, which I use quotes around the word purebred because there's no such thing as a purebred dog. There's just physical characteristics that breeders have for some reason decided. Are a breed standard, and that they want to see. And Taylor, of course, you know this very well. But oftentimes, um, breed standards involve physical characteristics that inherently cause animals to suffer. So they might have like brains that are too big for their skulls and cause constant headaches. Many animals have breathing problems because of pure breeding. It's uh, it's something that we should be moving away from, not protecting. Absolutely. Yeah, so um, kudos to the Minister of Agriculture in Nova Scotia for moving forward with this, despite the pushback from the breeders. Um, a lot of the times the industries get involved and they um, do manage to kibosh legislation. But I've heard in this case that there was also a huge wave of support from the public and that many people were mobilizing to make sure this legislation passed. So I hope it does get through the final stages pretty soon, but it's um, great to see that it's going to happen.
1: Definitely, and it's it gives you a bit of hope in terms of maybe where humanity is at if you know there was a lot of public support for that
0: i think so and you know this is kind of the low-hanging fruit to me like if if we can if we can't ban cosmetic surgeries on animals for our own aesthetic preferences then what the heck can we do exactly yeah all right well that's it for episode 18 of the pod and order uh, of the paw and order podcast taylor it's been great having you
1: thank you so much for having me i appreciate it We'd like to thank all our listeners for tuning in. Please, a reminder, you can subscribe to the Paw & Order podcast using iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcatcher. And please, please leave us a rating and a review, which helps us reach more people.
0: You can also share the podcast so that others have the opportunity to listen to it. And we always welcome donations to Animal Justice, which makes Paw & Order possible.
1: You can find me on Twitter at, at Peter Sankoff, on Facebook at uh, Professor Sankoff, and at my website, petersankoff.com.
0: And you can find me online on Twitter at, at Camille Labchuk, same handle on Instagram. And we always enjoy Twitter conversations about the show or any other animal law or political topics. And finally, thank you so much to our producer, Shannon Milling.
1: See you next time on or